Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, Max. Hey. Who is uh, who is on this podcast this week? <laughs> this podcast. What is this podcast? Uh, this week on the show is Jeff Goodell. Uh, he has been covering climate change for Rolling Stone for almost 20 years. He's got a new book out. It's called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. I listened to approximately 30 seconds of this interview because you asked me to clean up some background noise, and it was the most scintillating random 30 seconds. It was like, and then I almost died, but that didn't stop me from going back to motorcycle racing. That was the only thing I heard. Very good teaser for the episode. I was trying to find a way to tease the fact that uh, we talked both about climate change and how you report on it and how you tell stories about it and how you uh, don't just fall into an endless pit of despair, but also about near-death experiences, motorcycle racing, and Steve Jobs. He does it all. There you have it, folks. Listen to that podcast that you're already listening to right now, because this is the introduction to it. Uh, We are brought to you uh, in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Max with Jeff Goodell. Hey, Jeff. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for doing this. I can't believe you haven't been on before, but I feel like our timing is right. We shall see. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all right. Great. All right. I'm committed. If you're not committed yet, I understand, but I'm committed. I think this is our time. And before we talk about why this is our time, I would like to uh, quickly go back in time. I have been reading your reporting on the climate for over a decade in Rolling Stone. I remember many of your pieces as watershed, eye-opening, terrifying moments for me. And I wonder what the climate moment was for you and when this became the topic that you were going to so thoroughly dedicate your professional life to. 
That's an interesting question. You know, I grew up in California in Silicon Valley, but my family, I was, uh, they were conservative, kind of, when I was not a tree hugger, you know, grew up going deer hunting and I was a professional motorcycle racer and dropped out of college a bunch of times. Wait, wait, wait. You were a professional motorcycle racer? Yeah, I was. I, I had uh, lots of trophies and things to prove it and lost a spleen in an accident and all kinds of things. How old were you when you lost your spleen? Uh, 21. Was that the end of your career? No, I kept going after that. You kept going post-spleen loss? Yeah, I, I did. And I not only lost my spleen, I had to have emergency surgery, and then the surgery didn't work, and I almost bled to death on the operating table. I barely survived. Uh, forgive me, this is not my uh, intended line of questioning, but <laughs> what what does it do to the way you live your life when you almost bleed out on the operating table when you're 21? I I think that it gives you a clearer sense of urgency about like, you know, things change real fast. And, um, you know, I, I didn't register it at the time as, ha as having a kind of big philosophical impact in my life. I went back to racing motorcycles and things. But I think, you know, coming close to death when you're young changes you in some way and maybe has some connection with my later interest in journalism and in the sort of uh, adrenaline of journalism, uh, maybe connected to, you know, the adrenaline of motorcycle racing and things like that. I, I, I don't know. Did it make you less scared? That's an interesting question. I, did it make me less scared? Well, I don't know that I was ever scared. <laughs> well, I mean, you were a professional motorcycle racer, yeah. so the threshold's pretty high. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I ask, I had a not nearly as dramatic or cool near-death experience uh, as a young person, and I was less scared in the moment than I thought I would be, mm -hmm. which I found quite freeing, mm -hmm. you know? But I was not a professional motorcycle racer. Uh, if you want to go into near-death experiences, I had a second near-death experience uh, a year and a half later when I was uh, hit by a car when I was walking down the street, and drunk driver hit me and he was going 60 miles an hour and um, I fortunately saw him coming and jumped and caught the edge of my knee on the windshield and tore my kneecap off. But if I hadn't have jumped, I would have been dead. Holy shit. Yeah. And your sense of that question was fear was not an emotion that you were particularly familiar with, but that you do think it maybe led you to this work? It's interesting because I never really made that connection until like you're just saying this right now. But I, I do think that my interest in uh, adrenaline, you know, I think journalism, especially when you're starting out, you know, you asked me about how I started out with journalism. And, you know, I started out in New York City covering cops and crime and all that kind of thing. And, you know, there's the deadline thing. And, and you know, one of the things that is required to succeed as a journalist is the ability to get stuff done on deadlines and the kind of adrenaline that a deadline gives you. And, and it's not dissimilar to, you know, riding a motorcycle at, you know, 90 miles an hour through a hairpin curve or something like that. I mean, it's very different, but it's also somewhat the same. Has that adrenaline stayed consistent for you as you've been doing this for years? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it has. I mean, you know, even writing a book is a different kind of working under pressure, working under uncertainty, you know, a book deadline is in fact, in a way more terrifying than a Rolling Stone deadline or a daily newspaper deadline, because 
if you get behind, it's you're really behind, and you can't just <laughs> right. you just can't drink a bunch of coffee and catch up the next day, kind of thing, you know? Yeah, the the scales sort of expand pretty quickly. Exactly. So, I don't I don't know what the link is um, between these things, but that was my narrative. And when did climate reporting enter that narrative? I started out in journalism in New York City for this uh, weekly called Seven Days that lasted just a couple of years. It was sort of a competitor to New York Magazine. And I did a bunch of crime stuff and, you know, city reporting. It was uh, during the AIDS epidemic, so I did a lot of covering of of that. And um, that magazine folded, and then I had done a number of high-profile stories, so I got hired by Rolling Stone pretty quickly. And for Rolling Stone, I, I did a lot of um, tech stuff. I, I had grown up in Silicon Valley, and I worked at Apple in the early days and knew Steve Jobs, and he was running around barefoot. And um, You keep having these asides that are like, <laughs> I was a professional motorcycle rider. I worked at Apple in the early days, knew but, Steve Jobs. I have to ask you about that. That's, <laughs> that's wild. What, what, what were you doing at Apple in the early days, and what the hell was Steve Jobs like? Uh, well, Apple in the early days when I worked for them, it was a literally an old dentist office that Apple was in. Um, it was a they had a several buildings. I was in a building called Banley Three. I don't know how many employees there were, maybe a couple hundred, three or four hundred. I assume you got paid all in stock, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm such a genius. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> I was hired to write a, a help write and edit the kind of. Um, owner's manual, the, the little product manual for the uh, ill-fated Apple III, which was the computer that was a disaster that Apple came up with just before right. the Mac. Huh. And, you know, here, here's the, my favorite story about my time at Apple was I remember sitting in my little cubicle looking out through the tinted windows at the parking lot there in Cupertino and thinking, you know, I, I got to get out of here. There is just like nothing happening here. This is so boring, this dumb machines. And, you know, nobody knew what they're going to be used for. We'd go to meetings and they would talk seriously about, oh, women are going to buy them to file kitchen recipes on and things like that. And so I brilliantly quit. And before I quit, the, my, my boss, my manager took me out and he said, Jeff, you know, I think that you might want to stick around. If you stick around, you, you know, you can accumulate some stock. And I think this company is going to be going somewhere, you know, and I'm like, oh, forget it, man. This is nowhere. You guys are a bunch of losers. I'm out of here. And I quit and went to Lake Tahoe and dealt blackjack, you know. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you ever think about like the uh, the sliding doors if you listen to that guy? Oh, I know. I mean, it, obviously, my life would have been hugely different. I mean, uh, you know. But I've never in my life done anything, made any decisions for money. Um, it, it just didn't interest me. I, I just had no interest in that culture at that time. But, you know, it was, it was very different then than it is now when there is so much going on and, and it's so linked to, you know, everything that we do. At, at that time, there was no internet. It, it was not at all clear where this all was going. And I was not an engineer. I, I had no interest in writing code. I had no interest in trying to figure out how to market these boxes to people. It just was not something I was interested in. It's funny to me that so much of your work for the last several years has been thinking about where all this is going. But at that time, you weren't very interested in where that was going. And I told him not only was I not interested, I totally didn't see it. I mean, I had no mm -hmm. vision whatsoever. But this links to the question you asked, because 
How I got started in climate journalism was as I was at Rolling Stone and writing about tech and things like that. In 2000, the New York Times Magazine called me up and said, do you, this was just after George W. Bush was elected for his first term. And, and they called me up and said, do you want to write about the comeback of the coal industry? Uh, you want to go to West Virginia and write about the comeback of the coal industry? And I remember sitting at my desk and I was a little thought bubble in my head was like, what coal industry? I, you know, I thought coal was something that happened in Charles Dickens novels. I had no idea that there was any coal in America, much less that we burned it at that time. Half of our electricity came from it. But of course I said yes, because it sounded like an interesting idea. And I went to West Virginia and spent a month or so reporting down there and wrote this big piece that eventually ran on the cover of the New York Times Magazine. But what was the link to Silicon Valley and to the other part of the story is that, you know, it, it was incredibly eye-opening for me because I climbed around in the mountains of West Virginia and watched these mountains getting blown up for coal mining. And I realized this was what was behind, you know, our pretty clean iPhone, Apple computer world. It was powered by these dirty black rocks. And hmm. that in a certain way, this sort of clean, modern digital economy that was emerging was built on this, these piles of black rocks that was, you know, basically unchanged since, you know, the 19th century. And that profound understanding of like what's behind the light switch kind of thing really blew my mind. And um, that opened the door for me to thinking about climate and energy. And I basically never looked back after that. I, I, that's basically, I mean, I've done a few other stories, but mostly that's all I've cared about and certainly all I care about now. It blew your mind. Did it freak you out? Yeah, it did a little bit. It, it was more, it was sort of like, you know, I had written a lot of celebratory pieces about the digital culture, about the emergence of the internet, you know, there was a lot of belief at that time, which, you know, kind of seems deeply naive now that it would bring us closer together, allow people to share. I, I remember writing about some, you know, group of gay teenagers in Wyoming who had made connections over the internet and found, you know, friendship and camaraderie and helped, uh, you know, and, and identified. Through the, or this was in the like early days of American online and things like that. And I had a lot of belief in the power and um, kind of modernness of this emerging network and uh, technology. And I realized it was all built on, you know, dirty black rocks and, hmm. and that the consequences of this were enormous and no one was thinking about it. I mean, obviously people were the, but nobody that I knew was thinking about it. And that journey into the coal country was really transformative for me. You know, Al Gore once told me that everybody who cares about climate and energy has an oh shit moment. And for me, that was my oh shit moment. And what do you do immediately after your oh shit moment? Because part of the thing that I've always been struck by and confused by and struggled to wrap my head around for people who do the work that you do is just... It feels too big for my brain is, mm -hmm. is like the best way I can put it, you know? And I mean, I'm interested in this in terms of the book, but just your reporting writ large, like how do you go about trying to understand something this massive? 
you know, just like you go about trying to understand anything else. I mean, you for for me, you know, it's all about storytelling. I'm really interested in narratives. I'm interested in translating, you know, kind of science into language that people can understand. I'm interested in characters. I'm interested in finding stories to tell about this world. In some ways, it's almost like travel writing or something. It's like you go to this weird island that's, you know, full of coal burners or whatever, and you want to come back and tell people about it and what you've seen. And like with my heat book now, my previous book was about sea level rise and I had wrote another book, you know, or, you know, a number of books. And one of them was about coal. I took that that trip into coal country, turned it into a Times Magazine article. Then it grew into a book. And so there's there I've taken slices of this bigger story and looked at it through the lens of coal and looked at sea level rise as a as a phenomenon in itself. And I think that's one part of the strategy that I've used that has allowed me to narrow the focus enough to find some kind of narrative to tell. Part of it is the immensity of the story, but I think there's also an emotional experience of it that I'm interested in, which is like, I can understand the travel writing analogy that you're using, but there's something different in saying like, I went to Fiji and here's an incredible meal I had and I went to West Virginia and we're all fucked. Right. I wonder how these two things talk to each other. You know what I mean? Like I've always had this experience reading your work, which is it makes something I struggle to understand understandable. And I find it fucking terrifying. <laughs> I mean, maybe, you know, since we're making these connections and the, how I got to where I am and how how my career kind of built, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I grew up in a place of dramatic change. You know, I did not grow up in upstate New York where I later lived, where things had been the same for 150 years, more or less. I grew up in a place where Every day I walked out the door and, you know, another cherry orchard was being bulldozed. Another new computer was being built. You know, another Ferrari appears in places that I'd never seen it, you know. And and so I've always been interested in this question of social change and how it happens and what it means and where it goes. And I, I think that has helped me somewhat in thinking about this because, I mean, I get asked all the time, you know, you've been writing about climate change for 20 years. Why aren't you an alcoholic living in your basement, terrified about the future and feeling you know, guilty about the world we're leaving to everybody else? And Hold on. I'm just going to uh, scratch that off my list of questions real quick. But, then <laughs> but I don't because I, I feel optimistic. I it's a, kind of hate that word. It makes me feel like a real Californian. But I do feel like, you know, changes can go badly, but change can also go well. And I think that there's I've always felt that there's a lot of opportunity here that, you know, I mean, everyone talks about that with green jobs and all that. And I know that in a surface way, but I think even in a deeper way of rethinking our relationship with nature, uh, rethinking our relationships with what we eat, how we build our world. I just think that there's a lot. I've always had an inkling of the of the possibility, you know, and with the call story, I was, you know, there was bad guys. And as a storyteller, you know, it's helpful. There's a long section in the new book about the possibilities for the bad guys to be held accountable through the combination of science and the legal system, which I will say I found, uh, I did find optimistic. Mm -hmm. 
the idea that that there could be some practice by which accountability exists for this thing that has felt so immense that it was almost impossible to calculate. Like that's a version, I guess, of the kind of progress maybe that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think that um, accountability is coming. You know, the more we learn about oil companies, how much ExxonMobil in particular, but, you know, how much they knew, when, when they knew it, how much the trillions of dollars that they've profited off of this. And what's been difficult is the idea of being able to say, okay, this heat wave, for example, was caused by, you know, additional CO2 in the atmosphere. It's always been this question of, yes, well, it made it more likely, or so, there's been that kind of language. But the yeah, actual attribution has been very difficult. But this chapter in my book that you're talking about is about the progress of this attribution science, and it's getting really good. And, and you know, they can now say, for example, that not all events, some events are not attributable directly to higher levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, but things like the 2021 heat wave in the Pacific Northwest they can say, these attribution scientists have done the work, and they can say basically this, this was impossible without the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. And they can say it to a, a level of scientific certainty that people that I talk to believe can stand up in court and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so once you get to there, that changes everything legally. And this is why right yesterday... John Kerry is saying we're not going to be talking about loss and damages. You know, I mean, I'm a big fan of John Kerry, but there's this question that's not only in the particular cases, but larger in the in the whole climate conversation of what is the rich West who kind of caused this problem of climate change owe to the sort of poor global South who doesn't have the money to deal with it and adapt to the changes that are coming. And once you get to these questions of attribution, it really changes the whole game politically, legally, economically in a big, big way. Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. 
milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. You said earlier that part of what attracted you to that coal story in West Virginia was that there were bad guys. And we're talking now about accountability for bad guys, basically. And, you know, there's not a lot of journalistic conversations I can imagine having in which a reporter's just like, those are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what your relationship is to... The word in my head is advocacy, but that's not exactly what I mean, you know? It's more like there's purpose to the work that you are doing. And I wonder what, if any, sort of balance or relationship you have between that purpose and sort of more traditional journalistic objectivity or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. And it's a, it's a question that I wrestle with and think about a lot. First of all, I would question this notion of objectivity. That's a um, a phrase that gets thrown around that is, as you probably know. I, I, I'd like to strike it too. I mean, objectivity and advocacy, neither of those are what I mean exactly. What right. I mean is telling it exactly like you have reported it versus feeling so clear about what is necessary. You know, I feel like my job is to tell the truth and to be fair and to be accurate. And I have a strong point of view, which is that I would like to ha us to have a planet that we can continue living on for a few more years. And in recent years, I've really come to see this climate story. And I would not have said this even five years ago, but I have really come to see this now as a crime story. This is a kind of looting of the atmosphere of the earth siphoning off, you know, resources and grossly profiting off of that at the expense of many other people, billions of people on this planet. And I, and I you know, I, I understand that's a, that's a big thing to say, but I think it's just pretty obviously true. And that doesn't mean I'm here in Austin, Texas. And I know a lot of people who work in the oil industry. I know I, I have dinners with them, board members of some of the big oil companies. I don't mean that personally, that each one of them personally is a criminal. You know, we are all implicit, you know, complicit in this, you know. I fly on airplanes when I have to. You know, I'm not living in a cave somewhere. But when you look at the bigger picture and the larger politics of this, I do think that it's a crime story. Do you think framing it that way has the capacity to change how people engage with this issue? You know, there's a lot of talk about solutions journalism now and doing journalism that gives people hope and doing journalism that leads to solutions and brings up a lot of questions about what the role of journalism should be in, in on a story like this. And 
I have a really hard time with that. I, I, I'm not a political activist. I have a political point of view. And some writers like Bill McKibben are much more clearly on the line, uh, across that line towards activism than I am. I feel like my job is to tell powerful, effective stories. And I don't feel like it's my job to provide solutions per se. I don't want people to be despairing uh, because I don't feel despairing about the situation. But I also don't think it's my job to get to the end of my book and say, okay, here's the action plan that we need to do, you know? And I don't focus group my, you know, writing. It's all very intuitive and instinctual. It's very just like, okay, here's the story that I see. Here's the truth. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to do my best to call it like it is. And you may disagree with my judgment, but you know where I stand and I'm not hiding anything. Do you have a specific reader in mind? No. I mean, I I am interested in talking to people um, who understand climate, who understand that Burning fossil fuels releases CO2, which goes into the atmosphere, which is warming the planet, which is causing all the problems that, you know, we talk about when we talk about climate change and the emergency that we're in right now. I don't really find myself interested in talking to people who want to argue with me about, you know, that this is all some kind of Chinese hoax or, you know, this is Bill Gates's thing or that, you know, people are putting chemtrails in the atmosphere in order to manipulate global populations. I'm not, I'm interested in talking to sort of smart, sane people who understand the basics, but don't understand the urgency and the subtlety of it. You're trying to give more information, more context, give stories to people who are already invested in the fundamental truth of it. And also, you know, I mean, this is a weird thing to say, but I guess I'm trying to talk to people who are a little bit like myself. I, you know, I got C's in science classes in high school. I never took a college class in science. I'm an English major from Berkeley. I have no science background, and yet I write about science all the time. And I think it's a huge advantage because I am not at all shy about talking to scientists and I'm not at all shy about asking the same question 15,000 times mm-hmm. and asking them to explain it more and more and more. I find it incredibly fascinating. I find this job of translating this science and the conclusions of science into language that I myself, as a former motorcycle racer, college dropout, Apple computer, nobody can understand is I think, you know, really important. I think it is important. I mean, that's that's certainly always been my experience of reading your work is um, I also got C's in science. And, you know, I, I feel like I genuinely understand the mechanics of heat in a way that I did not a couple of days ago when I started the book, you know. Is there a part of you that can't believe that it, there's anyone for whom this is a question? That even inherent in this conversation we're having is like, oh, well, there's the significant part of the population that thinks all of this is bullshit. Can you believe that that's where we are? You know, it is stunning to me, you know. Um, but on the other hand, I understand it. You know, moving here to Texas, I moved here four years ago, and uh, it's really the belly of the beast, both from an energy fossil fuel point of view and also from the climate point of view because of the, you know, heat and water shortages and sea level rise on the Gulf and everything. 
And I meet so many people who are really smart people, but but they have financial interests in in the fossil fuel industry, and they just like don't want to give up those financial interests. And I, I think that there's a lot of different reasons why people don't want to embrace the urgency of this situation. Some of it is laziness. A lot of it is money, of losing money, losing their investments. They don't want to change. They don't see the economic opportunity on the other side, you know, of investing in clean energy and in all kinds of different kinds of solutions to these issues that we're talking about. Is it a challenge for you to find the kind of empathy that you're describing for the people that you're encountering in Texas? Is it is it hard to do that or does it come naturally to you? I don't feel like it's my job to feel empathy. I mean, I, you know, if they don't want to take action on this, I mean, I, I, we're, we're never going to get everyone to understand this. That's just not going to happen. You know, I am incredibly encouraged by the changes that we've seen in the last decade, both the economic changes of, you know, clean energy, you know, 15 years ago when I was writing about solar power, it was all about subsidies and, you know, moral justification for solar and, and all that. And now it's makes no sense to do anything but renewables just from a purely economic point of view. So the whole rationale of clean energy is more expensive is completely false. And that's a huge change from what it was. And also culturally, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I started writing about climate change, you know, I would tell people and it would be like I was writing about the sex life of porcupines or something that it was like (laughs) some like little thing that like I was amused by because I was some kind of California tree hugger or something that didn't really matter to anybody. And now everywhere I go, I am just constantly asked, where should I move? Where should I invest? You Mm -hmm. know, what should I do? It's whether you're, you know, in insurance or uh, investment banking or a nurse or a car mechanic wondering if he or she is going to be obsolete. It's part of our cultural conversation now everywhere. And that to me is really encouraging. That's so interesting that you're like a um, bellwether for its immediacy. (laughs) I feel like 15 years ago when it was uh, the equivalent of the sex lives of porcupines, that actually is more interesting than what people actually thought about climate change reporting. Like I think it was, it was like kind of boring, you know, like yeah. it was a bummer and a downer and also it was far away and it like it didn't have forgive me for this but like it didn't have a lot of heat to it yeah how does telling a story about this how is it different than how you would approach telling a story about the kinds of things you were writing about before silicon valley whatever and how is it the same like how do you make this gripping yeah that's a re- really good and important question that um, is difficult to answer, and, and I and I don't have a good answer for it except to say I think that the sort of fundamentals of storytelling are universal. Whatever you, whether you're telling a story about a corrupt cop or a solar entrepreneur or a homeless person in Phoenix or you know political negotiations in China over carbon levels, for me it's about character narrative structure, dramatic tension. You know, it's funny when I'm stuck sometimes, and believe me, it happens a lot. One of my ways of getting unstuck, I'll put my computer aside and take out a you know yellow legal pad that I use to doodle on and stuff. And literally start by saying, once upon a time, 
and write my story like a fairy tale <laughs> and actually think about it in that context. And often I only get two or three paragraphs, but it'll, it'll get my brain going in this kind of structure of once upon a time, there was a little girl who walked out in the street and there were three bears and the bears, you know, it's like, that's what I'm going for. Because I think that that is how humans have communicated from the very beginning. And to the degree that we can tap into that, we meaning journalists like myself, especially writing about complex technical things, can tap into that deep human understanding of and receptiveness to stories structured that way, I think really helps. And it's what I want to do. It's not necessarily right for every writer, and there's lots of other ways of doing it. And I, I'm not even advocating this, but I'm just saying that for me, that's how it works, is that it's about what's the fairy tale here? What's the once upon a time story that I want to tell my readers? And part of the impact of getting to that once upon a time story is it takes this massive thing and it makes it personal. Right. And I do think that's how it gets gripping. That's how it gets immediate. That's how it gets entertaining is when it feels like it's not some distant thing happening in the future to somebody else. It's something that's happening right now to lots of people who are exactly like you who also don't see it coming. And there's so many stories like that in this latest book. I mean, you go into depth about the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. There's an absolutely brutal account of the young family that died hiking in Northern California. And one of the things that's so striking about those stories is they feel so unspectacular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's literally just a family going out for a hike on a hot day. Yeah. Yeah. I should ask you a question. But I, I just, uh, that thing that you're talking about is there in the book, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's there in the title, right? I mean, I think that a lot of climate books are just too distant by the way they frame the story. And, you know, there's a lot of great climate writing out there, but I just think it's really easy to shrug it off as, something that will happen in the future to somebody else, probably somebody with brown or black skin, probably living somewhere that I've never been. And I'm sorry for them. And it's a bummer and I should be a better person, but I got a lot of other things on my mind, you know, and, and with this book, even with the title, I really wanted it, you know, the heat will kill you first. I mean, some people, some of my friends were like, that's a really bad title. <laughs> you know, no one's going to pick that book up and read that book. That's just a, no pun intended or pun intended, I guess, killer title. But I really fought for it. And so did actually my editor and my, I have to really credit Little Brown because I think it's a really great title now. It makes it intimate. It makes it personal. It challenges you to think about your life right now. And that's what I really wanted to do with this book was in those stories that you're talking about is to bring it what's going on heat which was a very difficult thing to write about because it's invisible and it's you know when i started the book i didn't even know what heat was bringing this into our lives and making it feel tangible making it feel like an active force that we are living with and that shapes our lives and that can kill us and i i wanted to take this climate writing out of the stratosphere as it were and and bring it down to earth 
And that's what I really tried to do with this book. Well, that brings us to the timing because I can't remember a book whose central thesis was so reinforced by the news in the weeks that it was released. I mean, the book came out a couple of weeks ago and all over the world, the story is heat. Almost nowhere more than where you're doing this interview from in Austin. And I wonder what it has been like for you to see all of this happen after spending so much time thinking about this phenomenon. Yeah, it's like I'm living in a in my own Stephen King novel or something. You know, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it, it 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 must be. Yeah, you know, it's very weird, and obviously the timing is is first of all the book was a, a year late. I was a year late on the book, so I was like. One of the lessons of this book is the virtues of procrastination. Right? <laughs> if I would have gotten this thing undone on time, you know. I like the idea that it wasn't that you were procrastinating. You were just like too into the adrenaline of being late. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, that may be a better interpretation for sure. So when I had the idea to, to do this book, you know, I knew that I didn't understand heat very well, that heat was really important to this climate question. I started to do a little research. I realized that not much had really been written about it. I mean, of course, there's been tons of writing about global warming, but that's, again, this sort of general, gentle thing off in the distance. But the immediacy of, of heat and what it can do to us and to the world around us, there hadn't been much writing. So I thought, okay, this is an interesting idea. And, you know, I was thinking about following up on my book about sea level rise, The Water Will Come. And I thought, oh, well, I can maybe kind of do the similar thing that I did with that book for, for heat. And so it seemed... You know, it seemed promising, but one of the hard things about writing a book is that, you know, you start a book, you know, it takes me three or four years to do a book and you never know where the world's going to be. You know, what's the world going to be like that week when your book goes into the world? And um, in this case, there was a long term bet that, of course, heat was going to become more and more and more. And that was obvious. But the fact that these heat waves struck uh, literally at the same week my book came out was and is just eerie for me. And um, I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's just very strange. And, and I, I feel really grateful for it. Not, of course, because I understand all the suffering and I've written a lot about the suffering that, and death that this heat causes people, but I think that it offers a window of opportunity, you know, to to have people read and think about this and learn about this that wouldn't exist in a different situation. And so, you know, we're having this conversation. We might not be having this conversation if the temperature were, were you know, if, it was, if my book came out during a cold snap. But I do think there's th th these, these extreme events offer opportunities for communication that people are wondering what is going on? Why is it so hot? What does this mean? You know, I've read stories about, you know, people getting zipped up in, you know, body bags full of ice in the hospital. What is going on? Am I, should I be scared? Should I not? Should I not go outside? Should I, you know, what, what, what is happening? And so it opens the window a little bit to saying, well, here's what's happening. And here you can learn a little bit about this. And for someone who, like me who's written a book kind of about this, it's a good opportunity to reach people. There's another sort of echo of what's happening in the world right now of the that thesis that we were talking about of your book, which is, 
You know, I think like when I was uh, reading climate change reporting in the um, Sex Lives of Porcupines era, I was... I love that I, now that we have a sex life of porcupines era of climate change reporting. <laughs> yeah. I think I think everyone understands what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I think I don't know if I would have been able to articulate it this way, but I think that I thought it was just going to be same, 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 same apocalypse. You know, yeah. like it was going to be basically the same, and then the fucking world was going to end, and. What I did not feel prepared for is the mundaneness of disaster, mm-hmm. the banality of apocalypse. And you see these pictures, whether it is in Texas or Vermont or Europe or India, and then you also like got to go get milk. Mm-hmm. You got to do whatever was on your list for the day. And I think I was not prepared for it playing out that way, Mm -hmm. that you just had to also keep doing all the normal things. Right. You know? Yeah. And that, you know, that, that connects with, you know, the thing that I think that I worry about most when we think about the future and climate change and everything is, you know, everyone always is talking about adaptation. How do we adapt to heat? What do we do and all that? And the kind of adaptation that I'm really concerned about is exactly what you're talking about, that it just becomes, you know, we just begin to accept it as, as we did with COVID in a way. It's just, just like, this is just how it is. We have thousands of people dying every day. That's just the, what our world's like now. We have extreme heat waves. We have all this stuff and we're just going to carry on and go get milk and and this is what our world is like and kind of just adapt to it and forget that, no, this is a world that we created and that we can kind of uncreate or you know, make better that will lose any sense of both our own responsibility and our own responsibility for, for the creation of this world and our responsibility for making it better. And we'll just slip into this like, oh, well, this is how it is, kind of sucks, you know, that it's 174 (laughs) degrees today, but, you know, let's just like hang out in the basement and, you know, rub some ice on our foreheads and we'll, you know, it'll, it'll pass. Mm -hmm. The book ends, I don't want to spoil it, but the book ends in, in the same way that much of your work does, which is, I know you don't like the word optimistic, but we can say a, a, a hopeful note. When you think about that fear that you're articulating, that the way that people are going to adapt is adapt to passivity, do you feel hopeful that that will not be the case? Well, you know, I think that, you know, whenever we talk about what we will do or what the future will look like, I I really have to, you know, first stop and say, who is we? And that there will be different, there's no collective answer, right? So it will look different for different people in different places. And and I think that there will be, and there already are, we can see it. There's lots of people, the thing that I find so, so inspiring and that I, why I love this story so much. And I mean, this, this story of the transformation of our world of, from climate and energy is that I see so many people who are engaged and doing amazing things and building, uh, 
better world and really committed to it. And I find that, you know, in, incredibly inspiring. And I think we're going to see lots more of that. We're going to see amazing architecture, amazing technology, amazing ideas, telegenic leaders, social change. We're going to see lots of really inspiring things. And we're going to see lots of dark things. We're going to see passivity. We're going to see anti-science. We're going to see violence. We're going to see um, all kinds of ugly stuff as a result of the kind of chaotic climate we're moving into. But ultimately, I think that our job or my job as a journalist is to, you know, help people get smart about it. And I think that I, I do, I think, trust humans that will figure this out. And that, I mean, I, I really resist the binary, are we doomed or are we not kind of framing of this? Yeah. You know, we're, we're not doomed. And, and, but we have massive changes that are, we're facing and we're going to muddle through it in some way. And what's going to emerge on the other side, you know, who knows what that world will look like. Right. It's got no chance of being all on one side or all on the other. Right. The only thing that seems guaranteed is that it's going to change. Right. Which is in its own way, sort of like to go full circle back to being born and raised in Silicon Valley. That's sort of the one thing that was always clear there. You know, it was, right. it was going to change. And, you know, that's maybe some, in some big way, why I find this story so compelling. That and the fact that, you know, you lost a spleen and got back on a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you know what? I don't ride motorcycles anymore. I will not get on a motorcycle ever again. Well, I don't want to sound like your mom, but I'm kind of happy to hear that, i got to tell you. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for doing this. Great. It was really, really a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to her. Thanks to Megan Valley, who handled the show notes. Thanks very much to everyone at Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks to Jeff Goodell. His new book, a New York Times bestseller, I'll tell you, is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Not always the easiest thing to talk about, but man, what a thrill to get the chance to talk to him about it. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance 
and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.